Hello, and welcome to today's seminar, which is the third and final session in our series on extreme urbanism, a view on Afghanistan. Today's topic centers around contemporary architecture and urbanism in Afghanistan. I'm Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The mission of the Institute is to engage through interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues relevant to South Asia and its relationship with the world. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderator of today's session, Dr. Rahul Marotra. Dr. Marotra is the founder principal of RMA Architects. He divides his time between working in Mumbai and Boston and teaching at the Graduate School of Design at Harvard University, where he's professor of urban design and planning and the John T. Tunlop Professor in Housing and Urbanization. His new book is to be released later this month is titled Working in Mumbai and is a reflection of practice over 30 years. A discussion on the book is slated for next month and is scheduled to take place on Friday, November 13th from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Marotra. Thanks, Chelsea. Uh, so let's get going. Thank you very much for the introduction. Thank you for organizing this. Uh, thank you to the Lakshmi Mittal and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University for supporting this event. I want to kind of start by thanking uh, my colleague, Charlotte Maltabartes, uh, who uh, is teaching with me. We're doing a studio uh, which uses the same title, Extreme Urbanism, and we are looking at uh, planning, architecture, urban design in Afghanistan. Uh, and so this series of three seminars uh, really, uh, uh, the idea for this uh, series of three seminars uh, emerged from the discussions in the studio and kind of expanded uh, to also, uh, I think, meet the interests of the South Asia Institute uh, and really to, to set up a platform, and I hope it will be ongoing, a platform for conversations around uh, architecture and urbanism in Afghanistan, in South Asia, I think a region that has been underrepresented, but I think the world has a lot to learn from the experiences uh, of practitioners uh, on the ground, um, thinking through really challenging, often wicked problems in these um, areas. So this uh, last session, which is going to focus uh, on contemporary planning and architecture uh, is, uh, as I said, part of three um, sessions we've had. The first focused purely on planning and urbanism. The second one looked at traditional uh, architecture in Afghanistan and conservation kind of linked um, to uh, traditional architecture. And here we decided to focus on what were the pressing and contemporary uh, issues focused on architecture and how one might uh, frame those. And we have a great group of uh, presenters um, all folks who are really uh, engaged on the ground. Uh, and I'm going to just start off by introducing our panelists so we can go into the presentations uh, and then we can um, you know, have a discussion with the time that we have uh, at the end. Uh, so our four panelists are uh, Ahmad Ramin Sadiq, uh, Ajmal uh, Maiwandi, uh, Anne uh, Finestra, and Kokoba Mojadidi. Uh, and uh, I'm going to start, we're going to start with Ahmad Ramin Sadiq, uh, who is is a lecturer in urban planning and design at the Department of Engineering Faculty in Kabul University. Uh, he's been working at Kabul University since 2009 in the architecture department and now actually moved to the urban planning and design department, which has just been established in 2018. And he is the chair of this department. So it's quite path breaking that he's getting a whole department going and established. And so it's great that he could join us to share his experiences. 
he studied in uh, in Kabul, uh, has been mentored by professors from Kansas State Universities, uh, and also has a master's degree from Nyoga Uni Institute of Technology in Japan. Um, and his research has focused on the feasibility study of land readjustment projects in Afghanistan. And so we're going to start with his presentation because it might set up some uh, challenges for us uh, in the kind of planning uh, sphere. This will uh, be followed uh, by uh, Ajmal Maiwandi, who is who studied architecture at SIARC at the Southern California Institute of Architecture, and also obtained a master's degree from the Bartlett School of Architecture. He is uh, currently uh, a director or the, the director of the Aga Khan Trust for Culture in Afghanistan. Uh, and prior to that, he's worked as an architect uh, in Japan, the US, Germany, uh, and then established a multidisciplinary practice in London uh, and has been writing and speaking about these issues. And now finally has returned in a way to situate himself in his home country uh, and to contribute there towards reconstruction, conservation, uh, and really fascinating um, uh, projects. Uh, our third speaker, Anne uh, uh, Finstra, uh, is uh, uh, an architect uh, who studied at TU Delft. Uh, Anne has joined us, and you can you'll see him in a kind of foggyish background because he's in uh, in the northern parts of, uh, of of India, where he's working on a project for a reservation for snow leopards. Uh, so we might have him off and on on the video, depending on his connection. But Anne, thank you so much for taking the trouble of connecting with us. Uh, Anne uh, has spent many years um, in Kabul, uh, in Kabul University, where he taught pro bono uh, and uh, uh, worked with Afghan colleagues to update the curriculum. So he contributed to institution building there uh, and um, worked on several projects there, uh, including the first national parks in the country, a national museum uh, and other projects for the government. Uh, he then moved and started working in Delhi, has now relocated himself in Kathmandu. Um, he was also dean of SEPT University, which is an uh, architecture school, well-known architecture school uh, in Ahmedabad in India. Uh, and so, as you can see uh, from all of this, his engagement on the ground in South Asia over the last two decades has been quite, um, uh, quite intense. Uh, and so thank you, Anne, um, for joining us and contributing uh, to these discussions. And our, our last presenter in this list is uh, Kokoba uh, Mojadidi, who's a founder of Wingspan Architects. Um, uh, she uh, studied uh, at the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art, graduated in 2001. Uh, and she has sort of been working on a range of uh, socially conscious projects in areas of conflict, natural disaster, and, re and, and, and projects that involve reconstruction, leading uh, complex design projects through all phases of development from concept to implementation, because sometimes a gap there in these regions is quite large. And every project for her has been an opportunity to create spaces that thrive at the intersection of community, social impact and justice. And she divides her time with her engagement, her practice in New York, uh, but a very uh, intense engagement with work and questions, issues and emerging questions of architecture and urbanism uh, in uh, Afghanistan. So as you can see, we have, we have a really fantastic range um, of speakers and very much look forward to these presentations. 
and we'll club all the questions and the discussions at the end. Uh, so with that, I'm going to request Ahmed uh, Ramin Sadiq to uh, share his screen with us and start his presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Rahul. Uh, hello, everyone, and thank you for the, arranging the today's session. Uh, my presentation is uh, focused about land readjustment and urban redevelopment projects in Afghanistan, which is quite new and recent uh, methodology uh, adopted in the system of Afghanistan. Uh, the content of uh, my presentation goes from introduction then about the problems and issues of land acquisition, which is one of the challenge, key challenges in the urban projects implementation. Then I will focus a little bit about need for alternative methods and jump to the introduction of LR and UR methods. And moving on, introducing the Afghani model of LR UR methods. And finally, what sort of legal system establishment has been done for these projects. Uh, I think Afghanistan uh, is one of those countries that uh, its rural uh, areas is almost three times larger than its urban areas. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, from these urban areas, which is 24% uh, according to UN Habitat report in 2014, uh, more than 65% of these urban areas have been developed informally. And these informal areas have been developed during the conflict period, almost more than 40 years or 35 years. And only 35% have been in, uh, developed informally, uh, formally. So this sort of uh, concept or situation made a lot of challenges to the whole Afghanistan and even rural areas or urban areas. As an example, we can see the Kabul city situation, uh, which is the capital of Afghanistan and almost uh, near to 60% of the whole country's total urban population is concentrated to this city. And even in the Kabul city, around or even more than 70% of the city is developed informally. And a lot of challenges and a lot of uh, uh, impacts uh, is already happened in the Kabul, like inadequate infrastructure, chaotic city development, and many more. Uh, you may see the uh, the development of Kabul, especially in terms of uh, population growth, uh, almost around one century, starting from 90,000 population, coming to 2015 to more than uh, 4.5 million. And you may see the dramatic uh, population uh, increase in the Kabul city, especially during 1990 until, until now. On the other hand, besides the informal development, even in the formal development, we have another type of informality or how to say like violations. Uh, there are a lot of shortage drawbacks in the monitoring and in the infrastructure and in the implementation of the projects. As an example, uh, you may see that during 15 years in Kabul city, from 2002 until 2017, according to Kabul municipalities data, in four districts of Kabul city, three, four, six, and nine, uh, around 80,000 uh, building permits have been released. And among these 80,000, uh, you may see that uh, around 60,000 or 58,000 is 
without permit. I mean, they just took those permits or even uh, developed everything informally. And uh, the ones who got the permit uh, and went to decide to implement them, from them, 10% uh, is uh, only 10% confirmed those uh, permits and built whatever is inside the permit. And more than 10,000, uh, which is 14%, four, four, they even violated a lot of items which is inside the permit, vertically and horizontally, I mean, in the area and also in the height. This is another sort of problem that right now you may see a lot in the Kabul city right, <clears throat> right now. Uh, if, we, if we talk about the problems of Kabul or problems of Afghanistan, uh, one of the main topic is about the process, about the method how you're preparing the projects and how you're going to implement. Uh, almost more than 50 years, uh, only land acquisition process has been used for the implementation of projects in Kabul city and throughout the Afghanistan. Land acquisition is a compulsory method and it, beside its all merits, there are a lot of shortages or how to say like challenges inside this process that uh, some major ones could be started from the unacceptance of the residents, the compulsory nature of the process, uh, no participation of residents at all. Uh, there is no social justice in the system, uh, in the system of land acquisition. Uh, it is a little bit time consuming because several years it takes for only one small project. And uh, the most uh, complicated one is that the previous community is totally displacing or totally destroying because they just purchase and sell the lands. And this is the, the main item in the land acquisition. Furthermore, in the land acquisition, if we see after the implementation of these projects, there is no sense of ownership and re responsibilities to the residents of the area. And that's why residents of the area don't care about the proper use of the infrastructure, the facilities, and they don't care about the maintenance of these, these items. So from the government point of view, the maintenance fee of these facilities, these infrastructure in the long run is really challenging. You may see the Kabul city or many other provinces that they have built something after some years, even one year or two years, a road or a mosque or something they have prepared for this for a project, it is totally damaged or nobody cares about. From this perspective, land acquisition has a lot of shortage and from uh, social, cultural, legal, financial and technical point of views, only use of land acquisition for implementation of project is something impossible or we can say it like illogical to the government side and to the, to the resident sites as well. Uh, part of these questions, uh, it was found that uh, there should be something, uh, something new or something should happen to the land acquisition. Only use of land acquisition will not respond everything. Some other processes or methods should be added to the system to enrich the system and expand further doors to the development of Afghanistan. And the one of the main topics should be the participation of the residents, participation of the communities within that process, how they are contributing, how they are engaging, and how they will participate in the system. 
in the project. Uh, from these perspectives, Kabul municipality uh, eight years ago uh, through uh, technical support of JICA started to think about this and work on this process. And uh, JICA, JICA's technical experts could uh, adopt the land readjustment and urban redevelopment methods by studying the methods in Japan, in Turkey and India. And after all the study of these methods, they come up with an Afghani model of the, these two methods. And uh, even uh, right now, after uh, approval of the KUDF and SDFs for the five major cities, these two methods were potentially recommended as a tools, as a major tools for the implementation of these frameworks. Uh, this, uh, uh, in this slide, this is the introduction of land readjustment, which is a method or a tool uh, of development to be used for readjusting, reshaping, and regularizing of the lands uh, to provide them infrastructure and social or public facilities through contribution of the landowners in, within the project area. On the other hand, we have urban redevelopment project, which is a quite different. Uh, and the focus area of this process is a little bit uh, special because this is only, uh, this will be only used for the uh, mid-rise and high-rise uh, land use areas. And the concept is, uh, it's an intensive utilization of land that it will merge all the lands as a one land plot and then part of the vertical development, every landowner will get a floor inside the building. This is like conversion of the land to a floor and land adjustment is conversion of land to land. This is like land adjustment is a horizontal conversion and urban redevelopment is a vertical conversion. Part of the merits of land readjustment and urban redevelopment methods, uh, one is the major one is the successful experiences of other countries like Germany, Japan, Turkey, and other developing countries. Uh, another one is the participation and engagement of communities and uh, people inside the project. Uh, provision of the basic infrastructure, which is one of the major issues right now in all cities of Afghanistan whether it is formal or informal, provision of uh, land for infrastructure and public facilities, part of this contribution, and land value capture uh, or land increment value, which is uh, something really new in the Afghanistan, and it takes time uh, to get familiar with that one. Uh, the self-financed mechanism, because both of these projects are self-financed, because contribution make everything easy for the financial and for the technical aspects. Uh, part of these uh, studies, JICA also found that these two methods are much more efficient comparing to the land acquisition process. And it will provide an opportunity for a joint collaboration between government, between the private companies or developers and people, residents. And one other uh, benefit is that uh, in most cases, there's a very less chances for relocation or displacement of the residents from the project area after the completion of the project. Uh, this table shows uh, 
a very general comparison between LRUR methods and land acquisition, you may see that there are a lot of positive points comparing to the land acquisition like self-financing, participatory approach, the location of the land boundaries, and also furthermore about the regularization of the existing landships, which uh, land acquisition don't touch at all, and also about uh, the re reserved land and uh, fund funding the project by itself, uh, and relocation, which I already discussed right now. Uh, to all of these studies, JICA could uh, establish the Afghani model of this uh, two, these two methods. And uh, these are the key items that they have. Uh, they are all included in the LRU regulation, which has been uh, approved recently, three months ago. The main topics are participation of the residents, uh, the urban planning and urban, redeve uh, urban redevelopment, the self-finance mechanism, the provision of infrastructure, social justice, which is very sensitive, uh, the preservation of historical areas and cultural values, and a sense of ownership and responsibility of the residents. Because once they contribute something, it is, it is for their own. I mean, they will take care like their child. They will take the responsibility and of course they will use it properly. Uh, about the legal system, uh, JICA could, uh, could conduct several studies uh, jointly with Kabul municipality and with Ministry of Urban uh, Development and Land, and they could uh, establish the whole system, starting from the uh, land acquisition law. Uh, in in the two articles, they have uh, added the provision of these two methods as as alternatives of land acquisitions by problem, by municipalities and other governmental agencies. And moving on, they have uh, established a specific regulation for these two methods, which contains uh, 32 articles. And it recently approved in um, May 2020. And furthermore, they have established a, a package of other related documents, starting from the manuals, from the procedures on different aspects like uh, the procedure uh, for the LRUR uh, specifically, and also about the financial land and financial floor management, the, re the relocation procedure, the uh, coordination committee procedure, the relocation manual, the informal settlement regularization manual, the public participation and consensus building manual, land ownership clarification manual, and guidelines for LRUR technical committee. The LRU regulation will be used on national level, not only for Kabul or for Kabul municipality, but the rest of documents, especially procedures and manuals, they are all prepared for Kabul municipality. Other provinces, they can adopt these documents, but they have to customize them according to the need of their own provinces. So these are the whole system, how JICA and Kabul municipality could prepare something, not only for informal areas, but also for formal areas. So whatever we want to develop or we want to do something to not use land acquisition, we have two other options to use on either land readjustment or urban redevelopment. These are some further details about each of these documents, how this, uh, 
process was started, starting from the land acquisition, how we added the provision, and moving on how uh, the regulation was established, how this system and the articles have been uh, written and how they have uh, they have been enriched by uh, all the urban sector of Afghanistan, I mean, IDLG, Urban uh, Ministry of Urban Development and other agencies. And these are uh, the screenshots of these procedures, manuals and other documents related to land readjustment and urban redevelopment projects. And I'm sure uh, for this specific project and discussion, these two methods could be potentially used because it has all the potentials for Afghanistan to be used because it is especially customized for Afghanistan. Thank you very much. Thank you, Emma. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you for what you've done to kick this off because you've actually given us a much broader uh, context um, and, and, and raised many important questions that we will, I think, return to in the discussion. Uh, but really, I think for you to have set up the context to show us uh, <clears throat> the proportionality of the urban rural, the formal, informal, the mechanisms that are being used. One of my colleagues here at the Graduate School of Design, Gerald Caden, always says to design and to plan is human, but to implement is divine. Uh, and so I think for you to have put that right up front uh, is a very good contextualizing uh, of the problem as we see now uh, interventions uh, at the architectural scale. And I think the other very important question that you have raised, which I think creates a fantastic context for the other three presentations, is the question of capacity, the question of the bridge between governments and people, uh, and what civil society, the NGO sector, foundations, uh, people who try to bridge this gap are doing. And I, you know, and I know that the next three presentations really address that question, even as a model of practice in the context of uh, South Asia and Afghanistan in particular, in very interesting ways. So thank you for having set up that framework um, and uh, set the context really uh, for the rest of the discussions in some ways, and we'll return to questions at the end. Thank you again, Ahmad Ramin. Well, so, can I ask you to uh, share your screen and go into your presentation? Thank you. Good evening, um, everyone. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share um, a lot of information that's been collected here on the ground in Afghanistan over the past two decades. Um, <clears throat> I think it's uh, quite important to talk about development, urban development in, Af in Afghanistan in the context of social development and social development in the context of history, uh, particularly uh, uh, all the twists and turns of, of recent Afghan history. And I can think of nowhere better to begin than with the first half of the 19th century and some of the earliest depictions of the context, the environment, um, um, both socio uh, socioeconomically, but also in terms of architecture in Afghanistan. These are a series of sketches or uh, renderings that were prepared by James Atkinson, as, who was uh, uh, part of, or at least attached to the uh, invading British army in the uh, First Anglo-Afghan War. And they depict uh, a, a landscape, a very harsh mountainous landscape, occupied by uh, farmers and shepherds and bandits and, and, and nomads uh, uh, living in the decay of, of past civilizations. And they're quite interesting in that perspective. On this uh, image on the lower right, you can see the minarets of Ghazni, 
which still stand today, and also the the, the fortifications behind. So uh, a combination of fortified settlements as well as nomadic uh, uh, peoples moving from one context to another. This is as the invading army moves across southwestern, uh, southeastern Afghanistan into Kabul. These are a series of depictions of, of Kabul itself. On the top right image, you can see this uh, uh, mud brick or, or low rise city far in the distance uh, uh, with vibrant markets and, and, and fruit stalls, as well as some uh, uh, royal architecture. Down at the bottom is, is, is the Balai Sar or, or, or the royal palaces and fortifications of Kabul. Uh, to the bottom right, you have uh, the Babur Gardens, uh, which again is, is a natural landscape and a, and a historic garden established by Babur, one of the, well, in fact, the founder of the Mughal Empire, as well as the costumes and, and the depictions of, of, of people. Um, I think a lot of this is, is uh, very ceremonial. It's very colorful. And I think it talks about the rank and the, and the nobility and the entourage that, that associate is, are associated with it. The top right image is uh, Shah Shuja and the coronation of Shah Shuja, who accompanied the, the, the British army and was installed as a king in Afghanistan. As well as some of the scenes, uh, the right image is, is a market in, in Kandahar, and as well as some of the, the costumes and the, and the, and the decorations uh, representing rank uh, of the king and the, and the courtesans. This is some of the earliest uh, uh, information that we have, again, uh, cartography and maps made by the British Army of, of settlements in Kabul, and they reflect uh, very clearly a very dense urban settlement at the base of the Asmai Mountains to the bottom left. Uh, um, and then as, uh, well, in fact, uh, uh, with fortifications from the mountain and geographically with the Kabul River, and then far out settlements in terms of these fortified forts which litter the landscape. These are again, um, in fact, during the second Anglo-Afghan War with the invention of, of, of photography and photographic equipment, these are some of the earliest depictions of the environment around the city. Um, top right is the Balai Sar Citadel, again, a Mughal era structure, and bottom left is a, is a bazaar in the uh, sporadic and spontaneous outgrowth of residential areas around the uh, Balai Sar. This is a, uh, the top panoramic again is taken from the Balaisar and it shows the city, which essentially is a low rise city. On the bottom left of the top image, you can see two circular uh, uh, holes in the ground. And these are essentially refrigerators where snow would have been put in and then compacted and then used throughout the, throughout the summer. Um, it's a walled fortification. It's quite interesting in that way because the architecture is built along the wall. This is uh, an image again at the same time by John Burke, which shows a, a uh, regiment of, of sepoys and, and British troops and also their, their Afghan collaborators, setting up a defensive positions along the ridge with a settlement down at the bottom. And then in the far distance, you can see these fortified uh, residential compounds, which have been built around the, the perimeter. Most of Kabul, of course, at that time, that this time is green, natural, agricultural landscape. Um, 
1880, with the establishment or re-establishment of, of a semi-independent Afghan monarchy, uh, the Afghan monarchy sets out on a, on a program of building uh, uh, palaces, essentially, or, or royal buildings, which you can see here in the center of this building is what we call today the Arg complex. This is still where the presidents of Afghanistan are based, including the current president. And in the foreground, you see the sporadic organic uh, development of residential areas around these contexts. These are this, uh, a set of postcards prepared in the early 20th century, which uh, uh, catalog the range of buildings. And already we can see an influence of Western architecture in the, in the more traditional uh, uh, building typology with pediments, uh, uh, well, Greek-type Greek triangular pediments above the windows, a more rounded arches and openings as, a point to the, as opposed to the pointed arches and openings. Um, very idyllic scenes of uh, royal gardens, uh, especially uh, the one on the bottom left, uh, depicting kind of a Greek uh, temple setting. Uh, this is also the time where um, King Amanullah Khan in 1919, uh, uh, he becomes the king, and he uh, expands this program of construction into a more modern uh, um, state building program in the sense that previously royals were building ro uh, buildings for themselves. But from this point forward, there's much more focus on civic architecture. This is a Dalaman Palace, which is at the center uh, of a new city, which was planned to the south of Kabul, which was meant to become a kind of administrative uh, hub, uh, moving our government functions to, to this location. Aside from uh, the, the palace itself, this is a view looking back from the palace towards Kabul, which is essentially at the base of, of the mountain in the, in the distance. Uh, uh, aside from the Dalaman Palace and a number of buildings, including today's National Museum and the, the, at that time the Department or the Institute of Archaeology, very few of these buildings were built because along with his uh, uh, modernization programs, there was a very intense or deep focus on modernizing or educating the Afghan society as well. And there was a backlash to that modernization program, particularly within the conservative elements of the country at that time. So these programs were seen to be moving too quickly towards modernization. And in fact, Amanullah Khan was deposed uh, just before 1930 and 1929. His successors, I think, learned a lesson from, from, uh, from him. And I, while the modernization programs continued, they continued at a much slower rate and took significantly longer time. This is the British Embassy compound, which was uh, established after the third Anglo-Afghan War in 1919, where Afghanistan obtained its, uh, its independence over, over foreign affairs. And this is one of the earliest buildings that I think, uh, aside from the arches and the columns and, and, the, and the pediments, I think is, is, is maybe one of the earliest uh, buildings representing a modern uh, era. This would have been done during the Edwardian time in, in, in British architecture, where a lot of the influence uh, comes from mainland Europe, would have been also during visits by the royalty, Afghan royalty to, to, to England and, and, and Germany, for example. So in the 1930s to the 1970s, Afghanistan sets out on an ambitious program of, of uh, building infrastructure, uh, uh, dams, uh, uh, factories, roads, tunnels, 
as well as factories, uh, scaling up industrial production. In the beginning, a lot of this was funded uh, uh, directly by the Afghan government itself. In fact, Knut Moritzen, who built the Hoover Dam and set up the Tennessee Valley Authority, also set up the Helmand Valley Authority. There was a lot of cooperation back and forth. And this was also the beginning of, uh, of an exchange between Afghanistan and Western countries in terms of technical support and development support, setting up a, um, a, um, a, not necessarily a conflict, but setting up a race, an aid or development race between what was then the Soviet bloc and the West. So various uh, countries sponsored various large-scale infrastructural projects in the country, including the Kandahar Airport on the top left, which was a US-funded project. And likewise, then the Kabul airport was funded by, by, by the Soviet Union at that time. So these buildings are, are a stark departure from the traditional architecture of Afghanistan. They're quite contemporary, quite modern. The Ministry of Finance building in the bottom right, uh, again, represents how Afghanistan wants to be seen in the middle of the 20, uh, 20th century. Along with a change, in fact, I would say uh, hand in hand with, with change in the urban environment and architectural environment is change in the social environment. And by the 1970s, a lot of programs have enabled um, education uh, uh, for women and for a wide range of people uh, um, from various contexts. This is um, the Kabul Expo, and I think this also re represents the outward-looking Afghanistan in 1956, and uh, uh, particularly with this geodesic dome by uh, Buckmaster Fuller, and also some mobile exhibitions. Um, uh, this was also the time that Duke Ellington had first visited Afghanistan, so um, a kind of mingling or exchange between the West and the East. These are some scenes of, of Western Kabul, uh, in fact, Eastern Kabul, where you can see these new parade grounds on the top image in the foreground. And modern architecture at that time was also meant to be used as a, as a veil to conceal traditional architecture. Traditional architecture had the stigma associated with it, that it was backwards and it was um, something that people generally didn't aspire towards. So on the top image, uh, you can see a kind of urban arm armature being cut through. This is Jade Maiwan through the old city and lined with modern buildings, essentially giving the city another face. A lot of civic and educational buildings were also built at this time. Um, these are what are called the Mikurayan, uh, which are prefabricated housing. I mean, I think a lot of um, uh, Eastern Europe and also the Soviet Union or, or, or the Russian Federation now is littered with these types of prefabricated houses. And a lot was done in Afghanistan. And this also marks a, a change in the customary way of occupying space because uh, you know Afghans tended to live in freer land and compounds and houses that had courtyards. And this was a departure from that in the sense of multi-story buildings that, that require uh, people to you know, use the same entrance and live one on top of the other. Um, also in the 70s, 1960s and 70s, there was a lot of tourism in Afghanistan. So there was an architecture that was spawned by, by, by tourism, essentially. This is a hotel that Marcel Breuer designed. In fact, a number of designs that, that were done for Afghanistan never built. But others like these on the uh, uh, top left were built, and they're quite contemporary, very, very modern. The top one is uh, between Kabul and the north of Afghanistan and Xinjiang, and the one on the bottom left are, is a hotel between the uh, Kandahar and Herat Highway. This was also a time where a lot of uh, experiment was going on in, in contemporary forms of, of single-family homes, and the sketches on the right represent that. There are large sections of Kabul that have homes 
quite modern homes that were built in the 1950s and 60s. Um, this on the top left is a, is a general plan, again, with the with assistance from the Soviet Union at that time, which looked at densities in the city and where high rises could be built. Uh, the image on the top right is two uh, prefabricated uh, mid-rise buildings. One is 13 story and the other one is 18 story that were built in the 1980s in Kabul. So while the plan was laid out in the 1960s, the buildings weren't actually built well after the, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The bottom left is, uh, is again, a, a quite a brutal uh, a, a concrete structure uh, clad in stone, but it was the Soviet cultural center in Afghanistan. Um, I mean, it, it has some implications to the Corbusier plan for Moscow and some derivatives of that. Bottom right is, uh, is a bread factory, the Silo bread factory, again, built in that same time. This is a very, very interesting example, uh, not built by with Soviet assistance. This is an Italian architect, Andrea Bruno, and his uh, design for the Italian embassy in Kabul, which again is a very, very good, good example, not only of architecture that was happening in Afghanistan, but I think of influences of a similar period outside of Afghanistan. With all of this development, what I think Ramin also uh, pointed out was the rural-urban divide. Uh, a fraction of Afghanistan was being developed in this way, while the vast majority of the urban population lived in poverty and lack of education. Again, the, the three decades of war beginning in the 1970s, these are a couple of cartoons that depict the Soviet invasion. Um, and also highlighted by fears of, uh, you know, the, the fragmentation of Afghanistan, the, the uh, as well as, uh, you know, different provinces being uh, taken by different countries. These are the war years. Um, this is a photograph in Herat, which shows the extent of the, of the damage uh, during the 30-year conflict. These are a couple of photographs of Kabul. The one on the left uh, depicts that same uh, uh, festival grounds and the urban armature that cuts through the city. And the one on the right shows the Kabul River and the density at that time. This is uh, a series of images that show the current situation in Kabul between 2002 and 2020, which is uh, uh, expansive development, uh, uncontrolled development. Uh, also, the, the um, confiscation of, of state land uh, and the um, development of private uh, construction architecture, and also the securitization of the city. Uh, these are, this is, uh, I, I would not context it or define it as architecture, but this is development and construction that's happening in the city and very much represents a new uh, uh, desire by, by people in Afghanistan. Uh, this is a catalog of, uh, of various types of buildings that have been built in the city. I think only a small example. Uh, and again, the, the difference between uh, poverty um, and how people occupy, the vast majority of people, how they occupy the city, as opposed to this uh, development that comes in, as well as the extreme securitization of, of, of uh, large swathes of the city and also its impact on the public space urban sprawl, um, density, as well as the living conditions for the vast majority of people remain incredibly poor. Um, I also wanted to uh, put a couple of uh, examples of uh, contemporary architecture, stuff that's happened in the last 20 years that represent, in my opinion, very, very good examples of, of uh, you know, the use of typology, the use of materials. This is the Afghan Center at Kabul University. Uh, Nancy Dupree's uh, brainchild, and it's a courtyard typology building clad in, in local stone, uh, and it's a research center and a resource for, for students. 
Um, this is a project which was proposed for the National Museum in 2010, uh, and it's still ongoing. Uh, designs are being further developed, uh, and, and one day in the near future, construction may begin on this project. This is a project that Kalkaba will talk about. This is a, a cultural center in Bamiyan, which was uh, um, selected on the basis of an international competition with, with significant number of entries. Um, so there's this project. And this is um, the Chilsetun Gardens, uh, a project uh, done by Laga Khan Trust for Culture, which I represent. It's a public uh, garden. It's about 12 and a half hectares. I'm just going to go through a couple of slides of, of the architecture. I want to depict what, uh, what's being currently done, what the latest is from, from, from the city. Uh, it's a 12 and a half hectare site with a number of public facilities and buildings. Um, and the buildings are built using uh, rammed earth. This is a sports facility uh, and sports fields. This is the Chilsetun Palace. In fact, it's an historic building uh, that had been expanded multiple times, but this is the, the reconstruction essentially of a building that was largely destroyed by, by conflict. This is um, also the main space on the left within that building, as well as some of the elevations of the sports uh, spaces, all done in rammed earth. Uh, the auditorium within that space, as well as the exhibition hall uh, within the garden and some entrance buildings around, together with an exhibition hall and the kind of administrative buildings. Um, in essence, a, a, a snapshot of, uh, of architecture and development in Afghanistan over the past uh, 100 years. And this is also the public and how they use this space and how they intermingle. In fact, there was a, uh, a comment recently about uh, civic space and the ability of people to mingle. I think that there are those spaces and it's a critical aspect of programs. Um, I'll stop it there. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Ajmal. I mean, that was a fantastic uh, overview of uh, architecture, the modernization process, uh, and of course, lots to discuss, but, uh, but thank you for a wonderful overview. And I'm sort of so glad you, you, know, you ended with the rubric of reimagined Afghanistan, because uh, in at least the examples you've put, I hope we can discuss these. Uh, you know, there is a deep understanding clearly in those projects about traditional practices, whether it's materiality, uh, but also space making uh, and, and the disruption of public space uh, in terms of its imagination with the socialist architecture of the Soviet Union and the many interventions over time. So let's pick up those conversations. But thank you. Thank you very much uh, for a fabulously clear and uh, insightful overview. Uh, and would you go next and share your screen thank you uh thank you so much uh, ustad uh, ahmad ramin for your uh, for your presentation and thank you uh, ashmal it was a very uh, good kind of historic uh, overview uh, we will need to have a little discussion about whether the british embassy is really modernism or not but uh, uh, i'm happy to have that uh, discussion later um I'm going to pick it up where, uh, where Ashmal uh, kind of uh, left it. I think uh, th there are many discussions about what has happened to the explosion of, uh, of Kabul. Um, after the, uh, the Mujahideen and the Taliban, uh, it seems, according to many people, including uh, Joylan Leslie, that uh, the amount of people living in Kabul dipped under uh, one million people towards uh, 700,000, 800,000. 
and that exploded now towards uh, four and a half, five million. In uh, and and the growth uh, is partly uh, came from many Afghans who came back from uh, from Pakistan, from Iran, from Europe, from from the US. Um, so compared to other, let's say, relatively fast-growing cities, we really have an extreme uh, situation in uh, in Kabul. Uh, next slide. Um, so in the foreground, you can see uh, a rather planned uh, Kabul, and then towards uh, the hills uh, on the on the top of the image, you have this kind of, um, uh, I think, uh, what Adam and uh, Wu Wan called a rich architecture. Uh, basically, it's poverty. Next slide. So people live here without uh, electricity, without water, without sewage, uh, and especially in the winter, uh, the worst that I've had uh, in Afghanistan was minus uh, uh, 25 degrees. Um, so good luck on the hill uh, in those uh, those situations. Next one. It seems to be in a, a, a trend in uh, South Asia to densify, to randomly do things. This is Kirtipur, part of uh, Kathmandu Valley in. Uh, in Nepal, uh, also this rampant kind of densification in an earthquake-prone zone is uh, is ongoing. Next one. This is a, a satellite image of the NASA uh, of Kabul, uh, the Kathmandu uh, Valley in uh, in Nepal, and it almost seems like this is a kind of a bacteria kind of spreading out. Next one. So it's not a coronavirus, but it's uh, maybe something else that is uh, spreading uh, fast. Next one. Uh, this is what uh, Ashmal uh, uh, already showed a little bit. Um, I gave it a name at a certain moment, uh, uh, called it uh, uh, wedding cake houses. There's nothing wrong with a wedding cake, but uh, if that becomes the size of a house, uh, next slide, then uh, it is maybe not such a good idea. And all, all the so-called beauty or gaudiness, uh, I leave that up to your judgment, is put on the outside of the building. All these toilet tiles and, and colored glass and, and, and stuff, it is, uh, it's unbelievable how much stuff is put on the outside of these uh, buildings. Next one, uh, next slide. So they literally pop up. And uh, the reason that I use that word pop up is that uh, some of it is financed by uh, opium uh, poppy uh, money. Um, in a traditional uh, uh, country like Afghanistan to make this kind of uh, rampant planning where people literally uh, paint their windows because then they have the privacy of not seeing their neighbors. Um, it's, it's a bizarre typology of, uh, of that has been uh, imported. You also see it in uh, Riyadh, in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. You see it in Peshawar, in, uh, in Pakistan, this style of, uh, of buildings. Next one. So this is the opinion of the local boys. Next one. So I'm going to switch now from the urban and from Kabul and the kind of the uh, urban sprawl. Uh, thank you for giving that number, uh, Ustad Ahmad Ramin, of 65% uh, uh, informality. Um, I'm going to talk about the slowness of Afghanistan and that the, the, the culture, um, the things that survive, uh, that have been built up in over a longer period of time. Next slide. So it's just about trying to find a balance like these boys did in the previous slide or to see, to really look at Afghan families in, uh, in this case, in the north of the country. This is a family in, uh, in the Wakhan uh, corridor. Um, 
And if you really look carefully in the eyes of the Afghan families and especially of the kids, uh, this is, I think, for the master students. Uh, these are your clients. These are the people why I think you are in this studio and why you should be trying to make a positive change. Next slide. Next one. So um, when I was asked with my team of uh, Afghan architects uh, to uh, design the second national park uh, in, uh, in the Wahan uh, corridor, where you have blue sheep and Marco Polo sheep and snow leopards, um, we actually started by looking at how in the north of the country they make stone walls. Uh, they've been making stone walls for many, many, many years, and they're very good at it. Um, and if you analyze uh, these kind of patterns, next slide, um, there's nothing wrong with your eyes. It's just a bit of a saturated kind of blurry uh, thing. Uh, next slide. So you actually see that uh, in the patterns of these uh, stone walls, there is nothing really horizontal and nothing really vertical. So if that is the case and everything is a little bit crooked, a little bit diagonal, uh, an asymmetrical network kind of pattern, uh, maybe that should also be reflected then in, uh, in the windows of the building if you want to give that uh, uh, a contemporary kind of expression. Next one. And uh, this is uh, looking from the inside of the visitor center and community center in uh, Kala Ipanja. In, uh, in the central Wahan corridor to, uh, towards the south. Um, so the big white mountains in the background is actually uh, Pakistan. Next one. Uh, the first building that we made is a small uh, gatehouse that uh, uh, is the entry of, uh, of the national park. Um, it's difficult to, uh, to, to pass this uh, without being uh, noticed uh, because uh, there is a guy watching you. Next one. Um, the larger building that we designed uh, is the community center and the visitor center. Large is a big word because it's only 80 uh, square uh, meters. Um, the central area is where the explanation of what's happening in the national park, the flora and the fauna takes place. And then you have uh, three rangers in the, on the right side. They sleep there. Uh, you have a little bit of an, an administrative uh, kind of corner. What is very important if you read this plan is to see the difference uh, towards the south and the north. Uh, the north has a very thick wall. It's 75 uh, centimeters uh, thick, a combination of stone and sun-dried brick. And the southern wall is a very open wall uh, with double glazing, uh, but uh, based on the basic principles of passive solar energy. Next one. So this is a sketch of, uh, of uh, that, uh, that uh, section. Um, the plinth that uh, we made for the outside, because there's quite a bit of snowfall, we used uh, horizontal uh, flat stones. Uh, next slide. And uh, this is uh, during the making of uh, the roof. My colleague uh, Farad, uh, Farad Jan is, uh, is, uh, is on the roof there. Uh, we used uh, 12 layers uh, in different mixtures of mud and, uh, and straw. Uh, the latest layers have a lot of clay in it uh, for the waterproofing of, uh, of the roof. Uh, Afghanistan is a fairly arid climate, uh, and most of the snow that falls is, uh, is dry snow, and uh, there is not so much uh, rainfall. Next one. Um, in the building, if you look carefully, uh, the other contemporary kind of expression that we gave is use the four different 
stones that we found uh, locally in the uh, in the surrounding hills uh, on the east side where the Pamir winds uh, hit the building uh, we used a harder stone which is a white gray uh, kind of uh, granite and then it slowly merges towards the north into a, uh, a gray green uh, stone next one if we move to the roof of uh, of this small building uh, we found that in that area, it's about 3,000 meter altitude, uh, slightly higher uh, than, uh, than Ishkashim, of course, because the river uh, kind of goes down. So there's about 400 meters of, uh, of uh, that, that river kind of goes down over that, uh, that amount. Um, we found poplar trees and uh, willow trees quite abundant at that altitude still. So we used planks of the poplar tree and we used the sticks of, uh, of the willow trees that uh, grow back every year. We also do that in the Netherlands. So uh, it was a fairly uh, straightforward kind of thing. And the only thing that we did is kind of say, make it in a fishbone uh, pattern because that is better for uh, the uh, earthquake resistance and the kind of the dealing with the horizontal forces in the, in the building. Next slide. Um, so to make it waterproof, you need to kind of uh, put a little bit of uh, clay mud on the edges, and uh, I don't know, but I um, I'm not a big fan of Frank Gehry and and of Zahadit, etc. But uh, I, I I personally very much like these kind of crafted architecture uh, kind of uh, exercises. Next one, uh, this is inside the building. You can see the uh, the sunlight coming from uh, the south. Uh, if you look up, you see the ceiling. Uh, this community meeting going on in the poster in the background is from the Wildlife Conservation Society who have a uh, snow leopard uh, kind of uh, program against uh, poaching. Next one. So I think I have something with snow leopards, uh, Rahul. <laughs> um, the, if you get the warmth into the building, uh, it's, uh, it's important that you keep the warmth uh, inside. Um, it's very difficult to uh, uh, import double glazing from Dubai or China or, or, or whatever, because when it breaks in the middle of, uh, of nowhere, it's, there's no way that it's going to be repaired. So much better to sit down with the carpenter, ask him if he can use a slightly thicker piece of uh, timber and then have that four centimeter air gap between the two single sheet panes of uh, glass. Next one. This is a small model that we built before we kind of uh, uh, to test out how much the sun was actually coming into the building. Next one. The sun uh, is, is also used by the king. I don't know if you remember this uh, uh, small chalet of, uh, of the last king, uh, Ahmed Zaher. And on the south side, he built a kind of a winter garden to, to uh, warm it up. And he uses that trapped uh, warm air to heat up the rest of the building. Next one. This is one of uh, the lessons that I hope you guys uh, keep in mind. Next one. Um, what is important is also to look at people and, uh, and, and try to design something that is user-friendly. Um, I'm sitting at this moment on a chair. I'm sure Charlotte is also sitting on a chair. But uh, in Afghanistan, uh, very often, next slide. Um, I'm not sure how this one came here, but that's all right. Next one. It's a building I designed in Kabul. Oh yeah, this is about the flat stones, etc. Um, sorry. So the, uh, can you go back one? Sorry. Yeah. So if you look at the floor level, you uh, if you can check out the steps that go into the building and how deep we have detailed the windows, uh, the lower window sill uh, down. 
uh, that comes back in the next slide. So we used a bit of a more contemporary graphic uh, in, in, this, uh, in this building. Next one. This is not a design by me. This is, uh, I don't know who, uh, if there is an architect, maybe it's an engineer, maybe there is nobody. Uh, but uh, if you see the dotted orange line, uh, this is a building in uh, Ishkashim. Um, below that line, you see two windows. Uh, and this is very useful for uh, getting the warmth into the building. So they're relatively low. Next one. And that makes sense if people roll out the carpets. Most of the time, there's a basic carpet on the floor. And then on top of it, there is a beautiful carpet. Next one. And so the idea of comfort and the idea of uh, whether it's, uh, especially for residential buildings, uh, it's very important to understand how people live and, and what is, uh, is used in, in that culture. Next one. Those pictures were from, uh, from Bandi Amir, which is about uh, 3,000 meter altitude. So looking at typologies uh, and living, uh, this is something that uh, is made by a friend of me, Martin Close. Next one. Typology development uh, of, uh, of houses. They used to have in Amsterdam uh, a, a room and, and a kitchen, and then both of them had uh, bedrooms, kind of almost in cupboards. Next one. When the typology developed in the 1930s, uh, you enter your house. On the left side, you have a room for the guests. On the right side, that is for the rest of the family. And then next one. And now it's all kind of like a kitchen. It's all kind of mixed up. Uh, people can go wherever they go. Next one. So perhaps uh, this exercise is also about inventing a new typology rather than really to talk about architecture. Next one. Um, this is a typology I developed for maternity waiting homes. Um, the idea was to have very low windows so the women could look outside, but uh, people from outside could not look inside. Next one. This is uh, one of the buildings. We made five of them in, uh, in all over Afghanistan. This is Herat. Next one. We used, uh, they have very good uh, bricks there, and we used that kind of uh, in the architecture of the building. Next one. Uh, we gave it a courtyard. Uh, I think that uh, uh, this was, uh, Ustad Ayaz had already kind of emphasized on the idea of courtyard that it might work, that the building maybe looks more inwards than outwards. Next one. Next one. This is the kitchen. Next one. I'm speeding up a little bit because I'm getting some hints. Next one. Yeah, here you can see the courtyard in the back. Next one. So in the studio, I guess this is the question. What for you, master students, is your added value? Next one. Are you going to make a guidebook? Next one. Like this lady in uh, Brazil, Patricia, has made. Uh, this is a guidebook for public space. Next one. Are you going to make a one solution where you pack it all up? Next one. This is uh, by the Peter G, Beijing 2014 ID, where the whole program is packed into one building. Next one. Or are you going to make a blueprint like uh, the Italian architects in uh, Herat did for a school? Next. I mean, it's a blueprint of a kind of an interesting kind of scattered uh, thing within a, within a boundary wall. Next one. And they used a lot of uh, blue paint, the, uh, the Italians. The national team also wears uh, these Azzurro blue shirts, but I guess this was a reference to the burka. Next one. Uh, is your building going to be climate responsive or your design? Next one. This is a project by uh, a group of uh, people, including University of Washington, where they very much designed a school in Mazar Sharif in the north based on air movement. And they have a summer school and a winter kind of mode. Next one. Exposed bricks. These are the architects in the lower page. Next one. 
You're surely going to end up with a future scenario, I hope, in the studio. And look at the fourth dimension, how it develops in time. Next slide. Um, these kind of patterns. Next slide. And I hope you really come up with a network where you use your analysis and your predictions to kind of see if you can make a better future for uh, Ishkashim. Next slide. Perhaps something like this. Next slide. Thank you very much. Thank you, Anne. Thank you. Thank you for, for the for the range of issues you put uh, on the table. Uh, but also, I mean, I think you asked the question of that, uh, you posed the question of new typologies, and I would extend that in many ways. It's about typologies, ways of making, aesthetic uh, that gets implied as a result of those new approaches. But, you know, thank you very much for bringing it down to the scale uh, and and reminding us that you know God also lives in the detail, uh, and uh, uh, you know and and situating that within a much broader and evocative provocative uh, range of questions uh, about context, uh, about cultures, about people, about users. So 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 thank you very much for that, and let's pick up some of this in the in the discussion. And with that, I'm going to ask. Uh, uh, Koko Kaba to uh, you know share her screen and start with her presentation. Uh, thank you, Raul. Thank you, the South Asian Institute for putting this panel of speakers together um, and bringing awareness to these areas of the world, which I hope continues to grow. Um, so I'm going to sort of dive into a more just one specific project. Um, I think. Uh, previous uh, speakers did a really good job on sort of preparing and laying out the the sort of general context of of Kabul and and of Afghanistan and um, this this notion of extreme urbanism I was I was uh, uh, contemplating to myself was just so what what is interesting about extreme uh, that word in in Afghanistan is you know for me. It was really the that moment where, um, in the last twenty years, there's been a surge of an international development community that has, you know, come into Afghanistan to 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 really stabilize and to find uh, an equilibrium for the country after thirty years of its destruction and its war and its civil war. And that need and that overwhelming demand um, that that created uh, really was something that, you know, every person, all of us working in Afghanistan uh, confront because, you know, the reality on the ground in Kabul is 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 really something so uh, so extreme uh, uh, when you compare to these demands. Um, so there's there's sort of there's sort of an expectation there that always has to be managed, and um, when when we, I'm going to just go into this uh, specific project I worked on, which was the international competition uh, for the Bamyan Cultural Center, and in uh, Bamyan, I'm sure everybody um, has seen the video, which I'll just start to share my screen here. So this 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 is the 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 World Heritage Site in Bamiya in 2001. The Buddhas were destroyed um, as an act of terrorism. Oops, sorry, see, do we have that video? Well, this I'm sure everybody has seen this video. That is that in 2001, there's a uh, 
basically the day before 9-11 was the the destruction of the World Heritage Site, where the two two big monumental statues of Buddha along the Silk Road there was destroyed. And um, the UNESCO uh, would like, like to uh, create this a competition, international competition around uh, a cultural center building that was basically on a site that was directly opposing this um, this this area. And here you can see that the here you can see the the site. This this picture here is is taken from the actual side of the building, and we're looking directly onto this. Uh, Buddhist side about uh, was these statues were created in this this area was was created about 1500 years ago and um, is still today very much a part of the national identity of Afghanistan these monuments these statues this cultural site is very much a part of Afghan life um, uh, People were uh, people do not practice Buddhism in Afghanistan, but this was always a dear part of the culture and the history of, of Afghanistan. Um, so the loss of this was 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 quite uh, devastating, and not only to the whole world, but also to to Bamiyan, which is a very small uh, village in the central part of Afghanistan. Um, that that is here sort of uh, located in the center part at a very high altitude, very difficult winters, uh, very difficult to get to during the winters. It's very, it's isolated during the winters and um, they just newly built a, an airport uh, there that, that, that flies frequently from Kabul to Bamiyan. And um, so the, so this so this project to start from the beginning it was uh, was difficult because at, at one point the, the mandate of having this an international competition was determined by UNESCO. It was a proposal that they had written to the Korean um, embassy, and they were they they were they were wanted this to be a public competition. Um, and I think as as practicing architects these days. We we are faced in Afghanistan and in these areas uh, with a responsibility to not only create and rebuild and reconstruct um, decades of 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 of, uh, of of people who are now in need uh, for for institutions, uh, schools, facilities, hospitals, uh, infrastructure, uh, but that also that we at the same time are asking ourselves important questions that are that 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 really answer to the responsibility of what how architecture uh, impacts everyday people on the ground and so keeping that in mind you know that was really uh, an interesting part of the program is how to convey a place to the rest of the world and to you know also Afghans maybe have not traveled to Bamiyan frequently uh, about the nature of this building and the nature of this competition. Um, how do we uh, create a new national identity through this building? And, um, you know, I just remember standing opposed uh, to the uh, cultural center 
site and this was actually very close to where they filmed the destruction of these buddhas or, or right on this site was the question of you know how when we look at this do we look at the past and how do we how does this building uh, relate to the past and if we're talking about the past then we're also simultaneously speaking of the future and you know these are just questions that i think everybody sort of um, processes in working in, in, in a place like Afghanistan, because what you do impacts many people, uh, not just, you know, kind of a, where, where we're used to in these types of um, in architectural practice where, you know, buildings like this are meant for a certain you know, group of people sometimes, like a very, very elite group or or um, a privileged area. You know, this this is an extremely poor area in terms of, you know, compared to, you know, international standards. And, um, and it was really important that whatever our architects abroad or in within the country proposed that uh, the, that it wasn't going to be about another building that was uh, uh, in a magazine or, or published or, you know, creating a, a kind of narrative around the a design process, but really, but really speaking to this area and, um, and having a responsibility to, to giving back to this area. So this, we created, um, I created a brief that went with this competition for everybody to engage in and read. And this for me was a way of mapping out uh, for people who very, very, it's very difficult to find information of this on this area. You know, I mean, if we had to Google it, um, I felt also kind of responsible to document the current uh, the current uh, situation there, um, photographs and and also, you know, what sort of illustrative, what sort of a picture we're repainting of this place. Um, and when 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 faced with all those questions, um, you know, it really was this. There was a simple answer at the end. It was just who are who is this building serving? you know, what were the functions that needed to exist? How do we keep this building sustainable? How do we make this building not only a building for culture, but also a building that would help revive and, and, and help this, this village grow as a community? Um, so this brief was, was handed out and I'll just, I'll just quickly go through this um, the pages of this brief. Um, so this is the site, this is the image from the site. Uh, we have a small introduction about the, the area and the history. Um, and then here we have like a collaged uh, 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 set of images of, of not only Balmyan, but the outside outskirts of Balmyan and the natural, uh, the natural environment. Um, there, there's, there's nothing more significant about these areas uh, in terms of um, how architecture meets the landscape. And this is a huge, you know, this, this is an aspect of architecture that you can see all around through Afghanistan, even through some of the images that Ajmal showed with the gardens that integrate with the housing and the courtyards. And um, so these, so, so this was a big aspect that I felt like was, 
was needed to to really be highlighted. And, you know, um, I'm not sure uh, if this even does it justice because it's it's the most one of the most beautiful places. Um, and so there were also elements of this uh, competition that were also having to, to balance out all the different mandates that existed around this competition. Not only the World Heritage Site and their requirements, but also, you know, the, the requirements of the Bamyan municipality and the local community and the local uh, cultural community of, of the village. Um, there were uh, also demands just in terms of the architecture and what was available with resources in the area. Uh, there are there were also demands as to how we were going to really execute the competition from Kabul. Um, so there was there was quite a few things. So and then this this image this page here in the brief was to show you know what sort of the the myriad of of, of the artisanal culture and um, and what really goes on in Bamiyan and what would what would take place in, in an ideal environment inside of this cultural center. So there's you know a long a long tradition of weaving in this village where they take natural wools and they dye them and and there's women in there weaving um, beautiful fabrics for coats and um, there's uh, there's painting and there's music and there's a cultural uh, festival every year. Um, here, there's some people doing, I think, jujitsu or some kind of wrestling. Um, and and this in this in this city really does take its culture to heart. And it really it's 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 quite amazing how um, it's very well preserved. Uh, and and actually, actually, they always say, you know, Bamiyan was one of the areas that were probably the safest areas in, in Afghanistan. So there was definitely a sense of like walking around there and, and, and things felt like of kind of a normal mountain, mountain uh, type um, uh, area. And this is an image of Kabul here looking from a mountain and just to show what's happening on the outskirts. So, so, you know, we have to imagine that like one of the extreme things about building in, in Afghanistan is that we have a demand from the out external world. And sometimes I think like if I had to paint a picture of it, it's very close to like, you know, if you had to talk about a city like Dubai, you know, the world is moving so fast. We're we're procuring like you know, at lightning speed. We're we're manufacturing. We're, there's a huge industry. You know, Afghanistan has just rebuilding a, a history from zero, um, uh, and that and that industry is 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 a really delicate one and you've seen those images of the pakistani style homes all throughout kabul and you know that's that sort of you know if we had to be thoughtful about our approach to architecture i think these are the moments that it are really in demand to do that kind of thinking and to do it um and to do it rigorously and critically uh so 
one of the things with the, this competition was I wanted to have some historical reference of a vernacular. Uh, so we show some images of, 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 of other architecture around Afghanistan. And then also uh, we show um, uh, one, one specific page. These are images of the site that uh, we're, we're given um, illustrating the location. Um, and then just to quickly get to this one sheet. So this sheet here sort of depicted all the, the kind of vernaculars that I thought were uh, critical for this area and really important. And they're not vernaculars that are, you know, modern they're 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 older vernaculars that are that that actually exist right now in, in the city um one and and they were sort of delineated and and kind of giving the competitors a tool as some 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 architectural tools to 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 not feel limited by but to also be able to to, to have a, a strong foundation when moving forward in the building process. Um, you know, there were certain things that were always keeping me up, like, oh gosh, what if this building is like all glass, you know, or what if this, you know, what if this building was just impossible to construct? And it just, you know, and and when you and when you see to a, to a place like this, what a building like this can mean, you know, there are there there are a set of questions that just naturally come up. Um, so that so the first uh, typology that was uh, described is carved spaces. So there's a quite a, a vernacular inside of this cliff of 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 these air of carved areas that were used for meditation. And there's there's quite a bit of painting that goes on inside of these caves, um, and with all the iconography from the Buddhist uh, uh, era and. That is that is seen throughout Bamyan, and also the Paksa wall, which is a type of mud wall construction and straw, uh, the baked brick and mud brick, which is also read, very readily used, uh, wood frame construction, which is primarily used in in, in the roof and in all the members to to construct the floors in the roof, and also courtyard and landscapes, landscaping and those were kind of like you know the building blocks for for the competition and these this is a these are all this was also an image of the site looking from the buddha to the site so you can see that it's i mean this view this view probably hasn't changed much in the last uh uh century or so which is quite incredible i mean the the energy in this in this city is is um is untapped, you know, it's a very, uh, very natural environment. And so these are also some more urban plans and site plans of the area. We had a designated, so, you know, one of the things that is so interesting about working in Afghanistan is that as an architect, you know, you aren't just working within 
a, a pre-existing uh, condition of, of building department requirements, but that you're also building the infrastructure of the practice of architecture simultaneously as you're building uh, a project. So for instance, this site, you know, we had to meet with the Bamiyan municipality and we literally here determined what the land area was together. So, you know, there was a general idea of a plot of land and they ended up giving us quite more, many more um, acres of land uh, for this competition to make sure and, and that it was a success. Um, and then, and I, like this is a good example, which is interesting to what Raimin was saying earlier that JICA is involved with this new zoning um, and implementation that this was actually created by us. And on the left here, it says the site requirements in terms of zoning, you know, the left side of the side, the higher elevation was only allowed to be a maximum of one story and the right side was a two story building. And that was, that was determined during the competition. And um, we, we had a meeting, we, we made sure that everybody understood and had, um, the agreed on, on the on on the basic guidelines. Uh, these are some views of the site that were given to the applicants. And then the program and the program was developed very closely with the cultural um, entities that exist in Bamiyan and what they need and what they what they what they currently do and what and, and also possibility for expansion in the future. So that sort of concludes the competition. And then the winning entry we have is, was a group of architects from Argentina. And this was the selected design. We, um, we really, we really appreciated uh, a number of qualities that this project proposed. And, um, and I feel like one of the hardest things to do is to try to design a building that you've never actually been to or visited the site or really visited the country at all. And we felt that this building had not only really taken into consideration the context, uh, the, the architectural vernacular, but also it was a type of construction that could be that could envision building on a new type of architectural language and, and while respecting and, and embracing the old. So here you see when you enter the site, you see really no building, you just see this beautiful view of, the, of a World Heritage Site and really celebrating the landscape. And these are some interior uh, images sections. And that said, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we've got about, We've got 15 minutes uh, uh, for some questions, and I, I'll, I'll just sort of start by just making some comments. And you know, uh, I think every presentation sort of opened up the conversation in interesting ways. Uh, I mean, I think starting uh, with the first one, uh, Ustad Ahmad, where you know you set up for us the context of the rural urban, the formal, the informal. But I think very importantly. Uh, the gap between uh, what you were calling authority or government uh, and what you were saying were people and modes of that you could set up as structures for participation and that 
uh, that connection. Uh, you also, I think, uh, I think in very interesting ways, set up the land readjustment, the Afghani model, uh, and the urban redevelopment, which is the aggregation. And it just struck me as being very interesting because even in the South Asian context, you know, the British town planning schemes were really about that kind of land readjustment. And, uh, and I think how that's been taken to specifically become an Afghani model is very interesting. And not for discussion, but just to highlight that the urban redevelopment, which is about the aggregation of often low rise, high density uh, and aggregating it. I mean, one of the big problems with that is the disruption of urban form. Uh, I mean, it has many advantages in terms of the equity it creates, uh, and it's not compensation, but people get located in the same location vis-a-vis -vis relationship to jobs, but it can disrupt the urban form because it changes the paradigm, you know, which I think Anne was warning us about how one has to be sensitive to uh, these typologies. And so that would be an interesting uh, uh, question. I think in Ajmal's sort of uh, uh, presentation, as I said, it was a wonderful spectrum. And I think the way you structured it uh, to show us so clearly the disruptions that modernization uh, created uh, and the Afghan 56 uh, images of the Afghan Expo I'd never seen before. So that was just fantastic. I, I didn't even know uh, that the Fuller Dome had been built there. So that was a wonderful surprise. But I think one of the things that I uh, took away from it uh, was, uh, you know, the disruption, especially when you show the socialist model. Uh, I mean, the two things that happen, one is, uh, and this is true for South Asia, suddenly through the modernization process, the architecture object becomes very autonomous. Uh, it becomes detached from its contextual bearing. And I think in one slide you said in passing, but it really struck me, was in the background, there were two or three of these fortified residential uh, units where people accumulate homes and then fortify it with a small wall, domestic in nature. But it's really, you know, it, it creates a context, even in an agrarian field, in a sense, an urban con context of aggregation, uh, which the autonomy of the object in the Western paradigm, including, you know, the British embassy, which you flagged off as a starting point, uh, is very striking. And then in the Soviet mo model, public space gets very ambiguous because it was about shared public space and not privatizing public space, which we've had traditionally, which actually creates a mess of another kind because people can't then relate to each other through the spatial dimension. Uh, I think that was very, very uh, beautiful. And Anne, I think, as I said, you know, the, the challenge of inventing typology, creating an aesthetic, uh, letting, uh, I mean, I think uh, in yours and in Kokobad's uh, presentation, this intersection between culture, landscape, and architecture, and how it all lands together is really uh, something that you uh, surfaced. Um, you know, the one common thing before we go to questions, I'll have a question for you all, and then we'll go to a few questions that have come up. You know, what struck me in all these conversation was models of engagement, so to speak. You know, the first conference we did in this series was on planning, uh, where we had projects that Sasaki presented that were from the World Bank, IMF. Uh, it was state-driven, top-down. Uh, of course, they tried to set up mechanisms for participation from the bottom up, but it was really driven by the state. Uh, and what's very interesting about your four voices, uh, and you also represent that, you know, the Aga Khan Trust, 
Uh, I think Kokobad, in a sense, as a consultant, but uh, as uh, as an individual agent, so to speak, and with the people you've engaged with, Ustad Ahmed uh, Ramin, with the university that you be part of, you are all in that zone of civil society, uh, which actually is the bridge zone between the authority and participatory processes, correct? Uh, and I think whether it's foundations, trusts, universities, or people with individual agencies aligning with NGOs uh, and other such institutional structures, you have all demonstrated kind of the role and agency of civil society in making architecture and urbanism in Afghanistan. So I just thought we could start with just a round of your reflections, really quick one minute reflections on, on is that an accurate description? Uh, and I think uh, in the context of Ustad Ahmed uh, Ramin's sort of uh, provocation of how do we build these bridges uh, to create the connection between the bottom up and top down, whether he asked us in the context of land readjustment, but I think it's also in the context of uh, Kokobal, as you said, so building social and cultural infrastructure and many other domains. So it would be interesting if, and, and maybe I'll start with you. Um, it's it's very interesting to be uh, put on the same pile as uh, uh, the other three uh, contesters um, or, or committee members. Um, I definitely uh, uh, feel 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 a link with uh, Ustad Ahmed Ramin because I've been teaching myself for uh, for a couple of years at the Kabul University, um, and um, also with Kukaba, who's more of a uh, consultant. Um, are, are you based in Afghanistan now, or no? No, I'm not in Afghanistan right now. Okay. So then, then it's slightly more difficult because I was never an uh, an in and out uh, consultant. Um, and I think uh, the Aga Khan has set up an, uh, a gigantic kind of network uh, machine, a, a kind of to come up with guidelines to support uh, the government, who in 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 several fields uh, is is quite ill uh, illy equipped. So uh, let's say the support that Aga Trust for Culture has given to the Ministry of Culture and Information and specifically uh, in the field of research and in, in supporting uh, Abbasi and, and the people who look after historical monuments, I think is, uh, is, is, uh, is great. Um, there are, of course, also other organizations like, like the Turquoise Mountain Foundation and, and a few other people who also try to do this. Uh, but I think Aga Khan uh, Culture has been quite consistent in building a, a portfolio and a kind of also a, a benchmark of where they believe the quality of, uh, of, of built projects uh, should be. And I think that's very important. Um, I think what I have tried to do in Afghanistan is, um, and that's, that's something that I had hoped for, Google, uh, to, to see today several examples of contemporary uh, kind of uh, architecture of uh, the competition in Bamiyan. Um, so I hope we can do that at some other stage. I'm very curious. Um, but um, uh, I think this is something that is really missing. Uh, there is a lot of effort in, uh, in, uh, in conservation and, uh, and, and restoration, etc. Uh, but in contemporary architecture and picking up 
the historical uh, perspective that uh, Ashmal uh, presented, uh, that's been really, really a struggle to find a new uh, language. Uh, uh, let's say uh, there is a new generation that, that graduates either from the Polytechnic University or in Mazar, they have a school of architecture in Irat, Kabul University, of course. Um, but where is that pool of new architects and, and, and urban planners? Where, where are they going to work? Where are the young practices? Um, and this is very, very challenging and very, very difficult because uh, I strongly believe that architecture and urban design can only work if uh, uh, young practitioners have a place where they can actually practice rather than uh, let's say larger agencies uh, who are very well funded, who are very well oiled machines, uh, but to figure out things yourself and to to find new ways of expressing uh, yourself. And that is uh, uh, that's been that's been a, a serious serious struggle in Afghanistan. And the donor community uh, does not particularly help with that. Uh, so the US AIDs and 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 the, the big million dollar kind of funders. They very often kill uh, very carefully uh, produced cultural programs or, or, or initiatives uh, who are very, very much kind of uh, grassrooted. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I think that's a struggle, uh, uh, but uh, let's say let's say it's a challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Kokuba. You want to your experiences and being an agent of these kinds of transformative. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was in in Kabul full time for about four years until I decided that I would relocate. But um, but you know, more than what's important for me, I wasn't even going to show the 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 finalists that won the competition, even the design. I mean, more because there were uh, there were over a thousand designs for the uh, submission of this building. Um, every single one of them was filled with ideas and energy that was filled the room. I mean, I couldn't, it was impossible to make the decision, but we, but you know, we were under a deadline. So and I think what's more important than looking at what these buildings actually look like is the process. And I think that that is really what is missing and, and, and lacking in terms of um, uh, the current uh, uh, environment as as architects in, in Afghanistan, because um, you can have a, a, a myriad of results of what the what the new building, what the new contemporary, what the new modern urban uh, form form or function is. Um, but I think what's more important is to really try to answer these hard questions. And during and, and one of those is, is how do you develop a design process for a building that will that will sustain itself in this environment? And that is a question that a lot of these buildings don't ask at the very beginning. And what happens is millions and millions of dollars of <clears throat> very very opportunistic projects for a place like Kabul, a place like Bamiyan, um, they, they go to waste and these buildings, they don't function after just a month of being open. And they and there's tons of corruption that that is involved as well in these projects. Um, but that as architects in Afghanistan through <clears throat> 
this new role as architects in, in Afghanistan, trying to trying to be the middle person between all these entities. You know, you we really do take on a whole new role. You know, it's no longer client and architect. It, it is much bigger than us. It's much bigger than everyone. And you're required to fill the role and you have a responsibility for that role. And I think that um, what the building looks like is not really the, the, the most important uh, matter. What's, what's really important is, are we doing, are we building processes and infrastructures and systems that will sustain Kabul, the people of Kabul, these new engineers, these new architects, the new contractors, um, uh, uh, how are we feeding the economy? Are we building an economy that's that's local to Afghanistan, or are we deterring a local economy? And I think that those, I think that there, I would love to show all of the entries for this competition one day. I mean, there's just uh, so many amazing, uh, such an outcry of, of, of presentations, but um, but more importantly, I think with the discussion of the future of, of, of building in Afghanistan, it's important to understand where we came from and how we're moving forward. Thank you very much. You know, I just sort of, uh, I, I don't need you to answer this because you've already answered it, but I just want to flag it out because Charlotte had a question for you, which was in your presentation, you spoke of an attempt to construct through architecture and design a new national identity. How would you see the project you present in Bamiyan as part of the task? And you sort of answered that, uh, you know, in these sort of broader ways. And if we have time, maybe you could come back to it, but I just want to put that on the table. Uh, so let's go to Ajmal uh, next. You know, I think in the case of your engagement, it's 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 at many levels naturally because you have a relationship with the country, uh, uh, but you're also now working with the Al Khan Trust for Culture. And when we talk about this sort of bridging and civil society, I mean, actually, one big component is patronage, which takes different forms. It could be state trade patronage. It could be patrons who are individual citizens. And I think in the case of the Arkhan Trust for Culture, you are working as part of civil society, but you also have the kind of, as Anne was alluding to, the networks and the support also of a patron uh, who plays a great role. And so just be curious to see your reflections uh, in this sort of agency. No, I, I think it's an interesting question. <clears throat> and not only do I wear various hats as part of my work in the organization, but I think the organization does multiple things. Um, there is a vibrant civil society in Afghanistan. It's vibrant, it's vocal, it comes uh, politically with respect to political issues, especially with respect to political issues. It's, it's, um, it's quite amazing to see it at work. I think for us as, a, as an organization, what we tend to do is, is bridge between the various uh, constituencies, whether they be state or communities, whether they be educational institutions, students, or, or formal planning institutions. And I think our responsibility is to demonstrate potentials. I, I, that, that, that's how I see it, essentially, in a context where there's so little um, focus on architecture and planning, and where there is, it's the, the, the tendency tends to be to, to look externally, I think our, our key objective and some of the work that we do certainly is to set up different modalities of how, of how things may be done, whether it be engagement or buildings or architecture. And I also think that reflects, and I think you know these potentials or demonstration of these potentials in many ways re reflect aspirations and aspirations are, are critical to, 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 
things moving, to things changing, to things being uh, developed in a, in, a, in a different way. A lot of our young architects, and we tend to take them quite young, directly out of university, and they work with us for, for years before they move on. A lot of our young architects are now key positions, whether they be in various ministries or whether they be in municipality or even in the private sector. There are three or four very, very good young firms addressing the challenge of a, of a dirt in the, in the architectural realm private 95 percent of what's being built in afghanistan is private it's not state it's not done by ngos or organizations it's done by the private sector and whether we agree or disagree on what the manifestations of the buildings are they represent something i think if you look at it in a more deep way they represent aspirations as well they might not be the aspirations that we would like to see or as architects as professionals with with other experience but a lot of these buildings are are, are reflective of a deeper social, contextual, cultural, uh, whether it be uh, abundance or lack of. And, and in that sense, I, I think our key role is to bridge between processes, between constituents, and demonstrate what is potential, what is possible in this context. Thank you. Thank you. That was a really comprehensive response. And we've run out of time, but uh, Ustad Ahmed, I'm going to, if you can very quickly maybe interject with the, how you see the role of the university, because a number of questions here, you know, point to capacity building too, uh, whether it's done through projects which result in capacity or Anne's question to you very pointedly is, who are the architects we're producing? Yeah, I think university are uh, the source of this production, especially in terms of knowledge and skills. And I appreciate uh, Mr. Annie Finstrand, also Mr. Maywandi from AKTC, that all the time they have done something through the university, even by assigning our universities in their projects or sites or whatever. But uh, what we are seeing right now that day by day, the knowledge and the skills are getting better. Of course, it takes time, maybe some years, but the market and also the skills are getting much more better. And even uh, on the other hand, if we look to the government side, especially in the last 10 years, the importance of especially planning is, is, is very increased, especially from the presidential office. Many, many larger projects in terms of urban design and urban planning have been enacted and approved by the president himself. It shows something that there are some potentials and president himself believes that there are many positive points and many energy in the planning aspects and in the urban design aspects. And the approvals that he and uh, not only him, but also Minister of Higher Education uh, given to the three departments of planning in the three universities of Afghanistan, it, it means there is a way that we are moving there's a light at the end or on the way. So we are trying our best through these parts, through these meetings, through these discussions to enrich our knowledge and find the proper way. Are we going to the right track or we have to change something? We have to add something or even we, we remove something. So we are trying to learn and enrich the system. Thank okay. you. Thank you very much. No, thanks. Uh, and, you know, that's a, it's a nice note of hope. And hopefully we can carry on these conversations. I'm sorry we've 
you know, run out of time. And these are all things that happen quicker than we hope they will happen. But inshallah, one of these days, we'll all meet together, even physically. Uh, but till such time, you know, I we are going to try very hard through the Institute here uh, to carry on these conversations. And this will be on YouTube. So you'll have many more viewers over the next days. Uh, and we'll direct questions or give you feedback uh, if we receive that. So thank you very much for your participation. I hope some of you will come and see our work in the studio. We'll keep you posted. Uh, and I really, on behalf of Charlotte, myself, the Lakshmi Mittal family, South Asia Institute, uh, Chelsea, uh, and Selman, uh, thank you for participating and uh, hope to see you soon. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Great. Thank you.